Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this event on racism, imperialism, and decolonization in international relations, which is part of the LSE's public lecture series. My name is Karen Smith, and I'm the head of the International Relations uh, Department. Tonight's event it addresses topics that should have been long addressed in the discipline of international relations, but have not been. Our panelists will address four key questions related to the discipline of international relations and racialized politics. Firstly, why and how might Black Lives Matter be a subject for scholars of IR or world politics? Secondly, has the discipline acknowledged its original sin in terms of erasing non-Western history in the shaping of international society? Thirdly, has IR taken seriously the colonial histories that were constitutive of the formation of modern states? And finally, can IR be democratized without wrestling with the history of racialized international political analysis and racism in general? I'm delighted that we have three experts who are going to tackle these questions for us. Um, uh, um, we did have a fourth Chris Murray, you might've seen in the original um, advertisement for this event, but unfortunately he's unable to join us tonight. Instead, we have Dr. Nivi Manchanda, who is a senior lecturer in international politics at the School of Politics and International Relations at Queen Mary University of London. She's the author of numerous works, including a single authored book entitled Imagining Afghanistan, the History and Politics of Imperial Knowledge, which has just been published by Cambridge University Press. She also co-edited a 2015 book entitled Race and Racism in International Relations, Confronting the Global Color Line. Dr. Olivia Rutazibwa is a senior lecturer in international development and European studies at the University of Portsmouth. She has also been a full-time journalist based in Brussels. She's a prolific writer with very recent articles in Foreign Policy and Millennium. And she also recently co-edited the Routledge Handbook of Post-Colonial Politics. Dr. Musab Yunus is a lecturer in politics and international relations at Queen Mary University of London. He has published several articles, including Race and the World and Time, Haiti, Liberia, and Ethiopia, 1914 to 1945, in Millennium, Review of International Studies in 2018. So the format of this event is as follows. Each speaker is going to give a little introduction, a kind of a, a, a beginning of, of, an an, of answers to those questions. And then we're going to have a panel discussion in which that we'll start to um, address these questions more directly. And uh, the panelists uh, can also uh, chat to uh, one another, answering, um, addressing questions to each other as well. We'll then have um, about a 30, 30 minutes or so Q&A session featuring questions from the Zoom webinar and the Facebook live streams. You can submit questions during the discussion and you can also use the voting system on Zoom or the like comments system on Facebook to signal your interest in questions. So without further ado, We'll begin, we're gonna go in this order. It'll be first be Nivi, Nivi, then Olivia, and then Musab. Nivi, over to you. Thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me. Um, at the outset, I'd just like to say that there's some excellent scholarship that has emerged in and through the discipline of international relations, not only at the moment, but equally has been ongoing and being continually built, built on. 
Robbie Williams' excavation of the long lineage of Irish scholarship on race through interviews with people who were working on race and coloniality in the 1990s before it became fashionable is one prominent and recent example. Likewise, Lisa Tilly has meticulously archived and documented through the very 21st century medium of Twitter, texts in IR that have created what she calls a rich parallel discipline, specifically in response to the hostility faced by Ali Howell and Mendeley, Richter Montpetit's article on the imminent racism of securitization theory, but also more generally for students of international relations looking for answers and asking questions that go beyond the canon and the stick disciplinary bounds of international relations. So there are both incipient knowledges, those on the rise in IR, and subjugated or insurrectionary ones that are now being unearthed. This is contrary to the orthodox vision of IR being completely blinkered and straightjacketed. I personally am not that interested in a reparative reading of international relations because people more knowledgeable than I are already doing that, including on this panel, but also because I'm more invested in a political and intellectual project that goes beyond the discipline, but of course that the discipline is inherently part of. So when we are asked if IR should study Black Lives Matter on the one hand, of course we or it should. Black Lives Matter is a global phenomenon of incredible contemporary salience. And IR can deploy its rallying cries of defunding the police and extend them to defunding brutal migration regimes and of empire and imperialism more generally. But I think it should do that completely and humbly instead of merely studying BLM as an object of inquiry that it can stir atop its firmly Eurocentric theoretical foundations as constitutive of the global and the international. But IR should then be equally open to confronting its own weakness and its own parochialism in, that, in its wake. How does Black Lives Matter as a global movement change how we theorize, how we study and how we interact? And this gets to what is perhaps more important structural issues. What does Black Lives Matter mean for hiring practices, for the allocation of resources, for the politics of citation? If we are committed to an anti-racist discipline or academy, which I am and I hope many of you present today are too, then it has to be a quest for more than merely strategic relevance. Not just how can IR become more in touch in the contemporary conjuncture, but how do we understand our own compl complicity, the journals we publish in, the institutions we are part of? How do those racialized structures of knowledge production get reproduced, even by those of us doing anti-racist work? And who gets credit for this anti-racist work? So I think this cannot be simply a question of theoretical interest, or rather it cannot be something couched as something that IR theorists should study. And I think this is also somewhere where IR stumbles. It rarefies theory and it silos it. So those that study realism or liberalism or post-structuralism or even queer theory are called theorists. And those that study racism, ongoing imperial intervention, global regimes of incarceration are called activists. And there's an implicit hierarchy and sometimes a not so implicit hierarchy. And this hierarchizing ends up occluding the normative whiteness and also specifically Islamophobia and anti-blackness of institutions. Accusations of the lack of scholarly rigor, of methodological lack, become a sort of smokescreen for the re-entrenchment of racisms and other vectors of oppression and prejudice, including transphobia and ableism. I'll just end by saying that these structures can be and are upheld whilst diversifying the curriculum or making IR more representative. So, pause, so I suppose what I'd like to do is think through with all of you how we can be more 
successful in resisting a sort of neoliberal politics of inclusion and diversity and whether another discipline and indeed another university is possible. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks very much. Right. Over to you, Olivia. And to follow on that, <laughs> I think Nivi really touched on um, the, the really the, the crucial, but almost all the points of the different angles in which we have this conversation. Um, so I, I think I want to pick up maybe on the challenge of how can we make sure we don't mistake the challenge of engaging Black Lives Matter seriously as um, this neoliberal multiculti uh, version of inclusion, let's be nice, tolerance, open-mindedness, all of that. And today we can add wokeness to that, right? Like there is this desire to keep everything the same, but still be seen to be doing something else. So um, I also don't remember what I described to the organizer, what I was going to talk about, but in one of the briefings, what ended up coming to the fore was that I was going to talk to uh, the funding empire. And I'm very happy <laughs> to, to go there because I think it kind of allows me to um, yeah, to, to be concrete on, on Nivi's invitation to go beyond inclusion and diversifying. And the way that I will try to answer, you know, the general prompt, um, the need to defend empire imperialism, is on the one hand by going to the most benignly formulated corner of IR, which happens to be uh, the subsection of international studies, broadly speaking, uh, that I teach mostly, which is international aid and development, right? And I think there is a salience to go straight to those places where at least we think we're acting uh, on, on good intentions. And I'm not being cynical about this, but, you know, there is a salience there. If you try and think, what would the funding uh, mean? Or if we translate the calls of BLM today, they are calling for, ab there is an entrance of abolition, abolitionism or abolitionist thought that enters the center of our conversations. And so I think over the years, I was calling for the end of aid and development as we know it, before even realizing the extent to which it was actually a call for abolitionist thought. And again, I mean, we can speak forever, forever and ever what, what the alternatives might be. And that's usually also where we come at. If we're going to abolish something, we need to have, you know, one prepackaged alternative ready. Otherwise, we can't talk about it. Let's try to, you know, resist that tonight. But um, I guess this is a concrete translation of defund empire. I want to speak later on. I won't do too much now, but aid and development as one corner of IR to which uh, to engage in it. And then def understand defunding um, as uh, abolition rather than reform. And I think that speaks to also what, what, what Nivi was mentioning. So how do you get there and, and try to maybe, maybe even open up this conversation um, uh, to, to the whole of IR as a discipline? Also, I would agree with Nivi, it's not about saving IR uh, in any way, but maybe making IR meaningful, um, maybe for a first time to, to human life or not just human life, but life in general, rather than uh, what it has been serving so far. So for me, how how to feel that an abolitionist um, discourse does not feel super outlandish in the same way maybe that I think for the first time in history, um, no, I can't say that because I don't know, but you know, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable, let's say, what has come out of uh, Black Lives Matters in, in the last few months, but was there already for the years uh, before that, is that somehow mainstream work progressive people 
are able to hear and have a conversation about something to do with the police and something to do with abolishing. And if we think about it, this is some this is quite remarkable in and of itself because so far, even the most progressive people that might be um, suspicious of what the police is actually doing, we have very few tools in our everyday thinking to imagine societies without the police, right? And I think the invitation for IR could be the same. I give the example of aid and development, but in general, what is it that we need to get rid of rather than try to reform when we want to engage something like Black Lives Matters more seriously um, when we engage in the study of the international? And so for me, what I want to um, share now is I think that um, it would be really important for us to pay more attention to some of the obvious things that come to the fore the minute that we shift the center of our concerns in IR from whiteness and white supremacy to literally the majority of people on this planet. So what happens when we shift the focus from whiteness? Then some calls of abolition actually appear to us as, as quite stating the obvious. And I know what I'm saying doesn't it doesn't feel um, uh, it doesn't feel that 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 natural because I think most of us on on this on this call have not been trained in a type of IR that does not center whiteness or uh, the continuation of the status quo of white supremacy as a world system. Um, secondly, it also invites us to, and I think Black Lives Matters does that to some extent, to some other extent, maybe not because the extent to which uh, still the U.S. is centered in many of these conversations where it shouldn't, but um, it also helps us address more systematically the erasures and the lesions of white supremacy and racism and racial capitalism in particular in literally the whole construct of IR as a discipline, but also what you know we can call the status quo of how the global system has been you know devised and the different ways in which our discipline help us to maintain it with some changes left and right again i'm simplifying for opening remarks but uh very happy to to continue on onwards with that in the q a the last point i would want to make and i think it also echoes something that nibi was saying is that um for me to engage with black life matter or literally the yeah the the whiteness at the heart of of ir let's say is to understand it both as a as as a push or let's put it like this we are all forced to circle back to the normative question around that what we study so why are we studying the international what is the normative project behind and I know a lot of our, especially also the social sciences, we have been trained or pushed to, you know, um, maybe privilege or celebrate these more neutral objective approaches. And there's been many critical schools that have spoken against that, but still some heart, some, somewhere at the heart of it, it's difficult to shake if we're honest. So I would say that it reinvites us to be more explicit about our normative project. So why study the international? And I would say so far the IR that we've had has been at the service of mostly the control of the non-white people, civilization, nations, whatever, even if it's not explicitly so, and aid in development falls under that as well. Um, so in a way, 
when we say defund empire or ab- abolish imperialism, it is both a social justice um, project. But I would add to that, circling back to what I said about the fact that if you literally recenter your center of concern about IR and all the knowledges that have been erased, whitewashed, it is also a deeply intellectual uh, enterprise where we realize that we have not even scratched the surface about how we can engage knowing our own worlds and how we then engage with it in a radically different way. So that's where I would want to end on. It's, it's both a normative social justice endeavor, but also a deeply um, intellectual project. And I'm not always sure on how to do what, when, but it kind of keeps me um, going, but also hopeful in a way that um, the whole the whole binary between activists and scholars is, as Nivi said, it's it's a false binary. So that that would be some of the the points of the provocations I would like to share with you all tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Olivia Musa. Over to you. Yeah, thank you, Karen, for the um, invitation to Fawaz and to the organizers of the event in general. And um, it's a real privilege to be discussing this topic with all of you and with two colleagues, but also friends, Nivi and Olivia. And I just want to echo what Nivi said about the fact that there are many people who aren't on this panel who've been dealing with these questions, uh, both recently and not so recently. And there's many ways in which we can kind of discover and rediscover the, the amazing work they've been doing. So I wanted to start my remarks today by really, I was thinking about what to say. And um, I came across an article that I, I, I'd used before in writing a book. Um, and it was written about almost a century ago in May 1921 by someone called Hubert Harrison. And Hubert Harrison was an immigrant to the US from the island of St. Croix in the Caribbean, and he'd arrived in the US aged 17. And he became um, a really quite astonishing historical figure, a self-taught intellectual and critic, a leading political figure in Harlem. He's often called the father of Harlem radicalism. And um, this article that he wrote in May 1921 is called Wanted a Coloured International. And in it, Hubert Harrison postulates the existence of different forms of internationalism which exist at the same time. So for Harrison, there's an official internationalism, which he calls pseudo-internationalism, and he associates this with interlocking capitalist and imperial power, uh, the interconnected world of big business and state power. So he calls this white capitalist internationalism, and he gives the example of the companies profiting from the exploitation of Congo under Belgian rule. Right, so there's this interlocking structure here of capitalist and state and imperial power. Um, and for Harrison, this is the kind of internationalism that we hear being celebrated in what he calls the temple of so-called civilization. But he immediately adds, there's another type of internationalism, which in the official narrative is called anarchy, sedition and Bolshevism. And an example of this is what he described as a kind of... Um, awakening of racial solidarity among colonized peoples. And so he says in the article, this internationalism doesn't get such a good press, but in fact, I think this is what we should consider to be the real internationalism. And I thought this article kind of spoke to our themes today in in three ways for me. Firstly, it represents part of a, a long and rich tradition of theorizing about the international 
across what came to be known as the Black Atlantic and more broadly across the colonized world. So Harrison's prolific writing on international questions represents just one part of an interconnected set of conversations that were taking place connecting Harlem to Accra, Accra to Lagos, Lagos to Kingston, Kingston to Port-au-Prince. Um, and this is a, a long and rich tradition of thinking about the international that's, that's there, right? It, it's always been there. The second thing I think is interesting about this is that um, if we look at the content of what Harrison's saying, his insistence on identifying an alternative, potentially a subaltern internationalism, which contrasts with an official version, I think that speaks in interesting ways to our present moment and to the existence of organizations and organizing principles like uh, Black Lives Matter. And then thirdly, I thought that the Harrison article was interesting because, I mean, as far as I know, he doesn't appear on any IR syllabuses, right, syllabi, and he's not taught to students of IR, um, as far as I know, anywhere in the world. Um, and so the, the absence of Harrison, and of course not just Harrison, the absence of um, the great majority of these people in the early 1920s who were writing about international questions from and across the Black Atlantic and the colonized world, that absence, I think, clearly speaks to our theme about erasure and race. Um, and it's interesting, just as an aside, for me to note that um, I think the, 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 the ways in which limited inclusion, so picking um, a single intellectual voice from a tradition, can be seen and re or represented as a form of expansion, when in fact, sometimes that's also another method of exclusion, because it really misrepresents or denies the existence of diversity and debate within that world. So I think in IR, rather than talking about a Du Boisian perspective on international relations, why, why are we not talking about a much richer and more diverse Black Atlantic, African Caribbean set of perspectives and some of the debates within those? Um, so all of this is to say, I think that when we talk about IR and race and colonialism together, um, of course, we're dealing with this major epistemological question about the relationship between knowledge and power. And that big question comes with a number of sub-questions. Uh, which types of knowledge count as legitimate? What is the relationship between the discipline of IR and power in the so-called real world? Um, what is elided in the discipline? What is absent from what we talk about? Um, and of course, you know, our own position as researchers and scholars um, as what Marx and Engels called living human individuals, right, who operate under de de definite material limits, as they say. So I think in that context, of course, we could make a strong argument for bringing those like Harrison into the field, a kind of formulation we often hear. But I think we might also question the presupposition that we begin with the field and look out, as it were, acquisitively seeking new material to recuperate. And so I think another question might be, what kind of knowledge are we trying to produce or uncover and for whom? And that I think is what we might call a question of strategy and it can help to guide our relationship to a field like IR, I think without being constrained by too narrow a focus on disciplinarity. Excellent, thanks very much everyone. Um, actually, I think that it's interesting the, the questions about the canon and, and exclusion from the canon. So I think I'm gonna start there and then kind of move on to some of the other questions that we posed at the beginning. 
Um, and just what you said in terms of um, is, in other words, is the first step expanding the canon, which then we, or is that um, too, too much sort of um, tinkering at the edges and not getting to the, to the heart of the matter? So is, is the problem re I mean, in this, I also think, you know, reincorporating, for example, work by women. I mean, that, that's, you know, and so this re just expanding what we teach students about how people have, how other thinkers have thought about IR. Is that sort of, um, is that a critical step or is it just a small little uh, step? So I think, I mean, I can maybe go in, in reverse order um, um, and, then, and then we'll address some other questions, but maybe Musab, if you wanted to, to do that and then we'll go Olivia and, and, and Nibi, if that's, if that's okay. Yeah, so I think it's a really interesting question. I think the first thing to say is that um, questions of canonicity, I think, preoccupy many fields, not just IR. And in a way, it's a question about academic and scholarly, scholarly inquiry more broadly uh, in response to certain kind of provocations and questions raised, not just by post-colonial theory, but also in general by um, what came to be known as postmodern theory, feminist and queer theory, gender theory. Um, which, which really have um, brought to the fore the, the ways in which previously taken for granted canons um, represent certain inequalities of power and, and domination. And so I think that's a broader question. And then how you deal with that, I think it really depends again on I think what you're trying to do. And if you're, the question about whether you're, if you're designing an international relations course, a history of international thought, for example, I think maybe what you're doing there and the questions that preoccupy you might be quite different to someone if you're a student and you're deciding whether to study IR as a field and you think you're thinking about whether IR really offers the, the kind of framework that you're looking for and you're interested in. I, I don't think we can get away from the question of canonicity and what should be in the canon what shouldn't be in the canon. Um, however, I think that it's to me that's a, a limited part of the, the broader set of questions and debates that I think we're all interested in here. Olivia? Did you want to? Yeah, I um, I do think that the canon is more problematic than we think, but yeah, I'm 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 gonna try to answer your question from a pragmatic sequency way, and then, but I think it also is should start to some extent with a much much broader, maybe ideological question that needs to be answered first, and I must have called it a strategic choice, I call it the normative choice you need to make, but at some point you need to be able to explain why you want to study something. And what. And, and I think that goes both for us as, you know, uh, lecturers or whatever, but it's also the question that I literally do ask my students, how did you end up in this classroom, in this course, and what what is it that you want to know and for what purpose, right? So if I then decide to... Um, to take their answer seriously, my case is inter international aid and development. To some extent, there's always something about saving people somewhere and doing something good, right? But if we do IR in general, we do have a choice to make. I'm going to put it bluntly again, between IR that maintains a status quo and from particular angles, that status quo is still deeply colonial, or you engage yourself in this other type of IR that Musa was talking about, which is an 
one or the other way, an anti-colonial, anti-systemic, something anti or something else, IR, right? And so it's in that context that it's not just about including other voices, approaches, whatever, or even also questioning the canon as a goal in and of itself, but it's about having the guts to work with the implications of those inclusions. So for me, it would be about um, considering the inclusive move as a minimum condition is very difficult to make a feminist argument if you keep on excluding women's voices mm. in your syllabus. But the moment you do so, you can literally deploy them to keep everything the same or radically rethink and all the different critical traditions that came from it, what actually happens to our whole conception of reality once we include these voices. Um, and so for instance, for, for aid in development um, in my case, and, and I've done this in, in modules now more and more, it makes it that the argument about the concept of aid in the present from a Western positionality becomes an obscene concept rather than something that we need to try and perfect. But from year one, we engage students with the question of why not rethinking this in terms of global justice and reparation. And it still attends to the same strategy or, norm, uh, or normativity to help or to do something. But you know, if you start, you include the history of 1492 in your syllabus from year one, that there is some stuff that becomes untenable. And the concept of aid is one of those. And then obviously you can see the whole dangerous <laughs> route that they can go. But it, that, for me, that's, that's the thing. And I think often, especially management speech or the way that we try to transform inclusion and diversity in a ticking box exercise is that we include to keep everything the same. Whereas I think that the real challenge is to include as a minimum condition to be able to imagine radical alternatives, basically. Thanks. Yeah, I, I do. I don't know if we'll have time tonight, but I do want to press you on some of the alternatives. You, you said you didn't want to get into them, but I would love to hear more <laughs> about that. Um, but anyway, Nivi, on to you. Um, thanks. I think Musab and Olivia have already said quite a lot of what I would have wanted to say, but I just think one of the things that conjures up in my mind when I think of the canon or something canonical is something that has been ossified and sedimented over time. Um, and so Waltz is part of the IR canon, but that's because, Mirsch, uh, because Morgenthau came before him and looked at Thucydides and Westphalia and the world wars as inspiration, rather than Sylvia Winters who looked at Haiti or um, empire or the legacies of slavery. So the canon is not come out of a vacuum. It has come out of years of imperial history and imperial thought and imperial present. So when we talk about the canon, I'm not sure we can just replace a canon. Um, but I also don't think that strategically uh, it's unimportant to not tinker with the canon. So I think pedagogically, absolutely broaden that discourse, broaden the terrain, uh, open up some of that canon not as a black box but as something to be problematized but also not just in, not just read things in response but think th read things in and of themselves as creating knowledge and producing knowledge in their own right so read Sylvia Winter not in response to the Morgenthau but read Sylvia Winter as an 
as a legitimate form of knowledge in and of herself. That's not going to destabilize or disrupt knowledge or change the canon, but it will have a bit more of a democratized way of studying things. Um, so I think strategically that's an investment we should make, but I think that's something that is only one tiny part of the larger project. And again, those structures, again, that those things are buttressed on, those are the ones that we need to really tackle and, and divert most of our energy in. But yes, pedagogically in the classroom, in, in terms of the discipline and the disciplinary conferences and boundaries and publications, absolutely, the canon should be questioned, should be contest, contested, yeah. Okay, um, I'm just gonna come to, uh, before we move to the, the Q&A, so there's several very interesting questions that are coming through on the Q&A, um, but um, just coming back to, to, to two of the questions that were part of the four questions that I, that we kind of were gonna guide this, this event. Um, and that was, this is about sort of, um, should we say the, the empirical, <laughs> what, 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 what is, um, what is the, the subject matter here? And the two questions were, has the discipline acknowledged its original sin in terms of erasing non-Western history? So is that um, enough in, in the discipline? And then that's kind of related then to the, to the other question that is kind of what touches on these empirical issues on, has IR taken seriously the colonial histories that were cons constitutive of the formation of modern states? Just wondered if, if, if you want to address some of these sorts of these questions about um, um, how we envisage what we study. In other words, what historically just, you know, how, how do you think that, that IR is, is doing that? Um, shall I go? Maybe I don't know if you want to go straight. I was going to go reverse order, but I could also start with Olivia for. Shall, shall I start with Olivia? I'll start with Olivia. Yeah. Great. Yes. Um, I think, again, and it's something that I've learned only recently uh, to, to have a dual answer to that as well. And, and it's been mentioned both by uh, Nivia Musab is that we can almost think of IR as, 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 I mean, we've made it now in two IRs for clarity's sake, right? There's obviously many more IRs, but there are parts of IR or places that we could consider IR, but even literally the origin of IR, if we engage with uh, Bob Vitali's work on, you know, literally even the most literal policy American, North American IR. Um, it, there is both an erasure, but also a deep, um, a, a, a deep empirical, but also normative connection to IR as an engagement with the colored nations on this planet. In the same way that if we're honest about the origins of anthropology or whatever. So many of our disciplines were literally about that. And then somehow along the way that got lost. And today we end up in a moment where we can say IR has not engaged with race, which actually on the one hand is empirically completely untrue, but then we also have the alternative IR that has always existed that has been doing that, right? So, so the, the answer to the question is not as straightforward as I would normally have answered it to say like, yeah, we haven't been talking about this and now we should start doing it. And, and I think it's been already uh, commented on how important it is to in this moment in the woke resolve to finally, again, turn to race and racism and racial capitalism 
to not engage in the same types of erasures, right? And I'm speaking to myself as well, because again, many of us have been um, exposed mostly to that version of IR that seemed not to be engaging with uh, race or racism. And then when it comes, um, yeah, to colonial history, I do think if we look at the main topics of mainstream IRs and, you know, the interest in particular forms of sovereignty, particular forms of state formation, particular forms of, yeah, then I think there is a gigantic systematized or a systemic amnesia, organized amnesia. It's not, you know, that we forget certain things and we can just add them. So I would say if we go, if we wanted to start from mainstream IR and then look at the huge concepts or the things that have kept all our often very uninspiring big uh, debates within IR, um, if you look at them, and again, I turned into to the, the fact that I said, this is literally also a super exciting intellectual endeavor. There is so much more interesting stuff to talk about when it comes to the international than what we've done uh, so far. So in terms of big powers and whatever. Um, so I guess, yeah, answer is yes and no. We have not seriously engaged at the center of IR with the original sin want to call it that even though it's raison d'être it's literally the original sin to some extent of the discipline um and it's not that we don't look at history but again that is very partial and it is a form of organized amnesia that serves i think i think for me thinking in terms of status quo and anything that would allow for a dislocation of power that's where i locate mainstream IR. and it clearly i mean it should not be said, but, you know, we have that in discussions about racism. Let's also say it here. It does not require uh, particular intentions of those scholars that engage with that type of IR, right? So it's not about not wanting to or whatever. It We're, we're having, I think, a structural conversation rather than an individual one of, um, yeah, willingness of unwillingness or unwillingness. Nivi, uh, did you want to? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'd just say that uh, IR has acknowledged perhaps its um, original sin, but maybe hasn't quite atoned for it, if you want to continue with the biblical metaphor, uh, in that there's a growing acknowledgement that international relations doesn't quite study imperialism, um, and it has been less than attentive to questions of race and coloniality and to the starting of the state system, which wasn't just a like a European sovereign states equally inhabiting this anarchical world or whatever IR tells uh, in its sort of conventional form. So there, there's definitely an acknowledgement. Uh, has that led to like a systematic rethinking of the discipline and to start elsewhere? I think there's less appetite for that and that has not been done. So it's still very much um, a sort of uh, superficial uh, acknowledgement or even if it's not superficial, it's merely an acknowledgement. It's like how white Canadians acknowledge that the land belongs to indigenous people when they start a conversation uh, at a conference in Hawaii, uh, and then and then that's it. That's it's forgotten. So I think that it's surface, and I, I think that's because it's easier. I don't think that's because there's any bad blood there. I don't think that is a willful racism. 
there might be, but I don't think that's the structuring principle. The structuring principle is that we have an edifice that's been built and we've built on it. And it's much easier to say, uh, this is problematic, we're sorry. But then rather than dismantle it to like tinker, like you said, Karen, at the edges. Um, great. Musam? Yeah, so um, just building on what Nibby and Olivia have said, really, I think there's two, to me, there's two different ways of approaching that question. And I think the difficult thing is to try and do them both at the same time and in a way together. And I don't think everyone has to do that, but for those of us in the field, in a way, I think we're walking this tightrope. The first thing is to see IR as itself the object of our inquiry, right? Sometimes this is called navel-gazing right, by people who don't like it. And I think back, I mean, there's such a rich tradition of this in, in respect to many things, but just in relation to race, you know, I was just reading um, Sankaran Krishna's uh, article in 2001 on race amnesia and the education of international relations. And, you know, really... Um, elegant and convincing um, de demolition of the idea that um, or the ways in which international relations as a discipline has been structured to exclude discussion of race. And so that's IR as an object of inquiry. And I think it's, it's always valuable to do that. Um, and I think that in a way, to the extent that IR has acknowledged its original sin, um, it's, it's this work which has for a long time been, been kind of pointing out that sin and how and why it was committed. Um, in this sense, I also think IR offers a kind of, um, it's a kind of case study of the relationship between a form of knowledge production, a discipline or what Bourdieu would call a field and re the real world, right? And the ways in which power exists in that world and, and the relationship between those two things. That's the first thing, looking at IR as an object of inquiry. But I think the second thing is, is using IR as a tool to try and get some kind of other knowledge and to try and think about, okay, we have this ambition, we have this strategic aim or goal. And IR is something we can use maybe despite or in spite of uh, its failings and its blindnesses. Um, and I think those two are not always the same. Certainly, if we're doing one, I think we always have to be thinking about the other at the same time. And that means if we're beginning with a question about has the discipline acknowledged its original sin, I think it's always worth, worth bearing in mind the second element of that, which is, well, what are we trying to use the discipline to do? And, what, and maybe that would help us to, to understand uh, how we might approach these questions of, of disciplinarity and, and occlusion. Okay, great. Thanks, everyone. All right, so we have quite a number of um, questions coming in. So what I th I'm going to do is I'm going to, um, I, I've, I've kind of looked through a few of them and they're, they're not really groupable. Um, so I think we're going to go one by one, um, question by question, that is. So um, I'm just going to, I'll read out the questions. And then if we can, maybe we go in the the order that uh, of the original speaking order. So maybe Nivi, if you want to start off, and then Olivia, and then and then Musab. Okay. So the first question comes from Ayana, who's at Sciences Po Paris. Um, we do have quite a an international audience. Um, I can I can tell you right now. This is wonderful. Um, so the, her question. She has two questions. Are the political and economic institutions elaborated by the colonizers in colonized countries effective today? And then to what extent are they still a constant reminder of the past colonizing force and colonial history? 
Um, so I don't know if Nivid, do we want to address that? Sorry, Karen, you broke out a little bit in the middle. Um, is it? Sorry. I think it was my my connection though. Um, is it possible mine. for me to read the question, or just? Um, or could you repeat it if that's not too much? Yeah, well, let me let me repeat it. So, so she's asking: Are the political and economic institutions elaborated by the colonizers in colonized countries effective today? And to what extent are those institutions still a constant reminder of the past colonizing force in colonial history? Right. So are these, institu do these institutions yeah, yeah, yeah. still... Okay, all right. Great. Yeah, I think that's a really good question, although I think we need to be a little bit more precise about some of those questions. So do we think of the state, for instance, as a colonizer's imposition? Do we think of democracy as a colonizer's imposition? Or are there indigenous traditions of statehood, of democracy, that perhaps might not be the liberal electoral democracy that we're used to, but have equally contested and alive histories and salience on the ground? So I think, um, so basically I'm complicating the question a little bit. There are sometimes fairly straightforward cases of imposition. So I think the IMF has now recognized that some of the structural adjustment policies that it uh, that it imposed in Latin America were a failure, but they were also specifically neo-colonial forms of neoliberal restructuring that actually ended up wreaking havoc rather than doing anything good. So th those are straightforward cases. I think other instances are less straightforward, um, but also I think sometimes the stories we tell of certain things as merely impositions are more complicated, including infrastructure. So, you know, the British might have built certain railways in India, but now does that, is that railway uh, uh, an indigenous or like an Indian structure and institution, or is it a British one? How have Indians used that? How have they navigated it? How have they expanded it? And what was present before the Brits just came and put this, uh, you know, railway links. Um, so I think, I, do, I think I'll have to, to be able to give you a more coherent answer than that. I'll have to think about an instantiation of the question rather than structures in general. Uh, I think also being alive to the danger and the damage that certain neoliberal structures do in the moment and resisting those is more important politically than having a sort of um, ad hoc or, or, or like a priori dismissal of all structures that may be colonial or imperial. Uh, Olivia, would you like to come in on that one? Yeah, I, th I think it's really a question that allows us also to to uh, attend to this, this not a, it's not a conundrum, it's, it's a challenge that it's a, an, an exciting one, how to speak to both the discipline for its, the sake of it or what the discipline allows us to do but then also much more the connections with the real world. And uh, while Nivi was speaking and, and mentioning structural adjustment policies, I, I remember um, thinking the moment that we had the financial economic crisis, mostly hitting also the US and Europe for once. I say this without any glee, obvious, like for real. But what, we, what I heard uh, in terms of the discourses used against a country like Greece sounded so familiar because I had been studying studies, structural adjustment policies of the 80s uh, against African countries, where it gives you immediately an example of how actually taking colonial and neo-colonial institutions and practices seriously 
is not just something that is useful in terms of, oh, let's tell the whole story and finally the colonized people get to speak. It's literally how can we avoid, uh, in general, making the same mistakes over and over again. And we know that at some point, the Western world even, you know, cannibalizes itself in, in, in this context, right? And again, there's many different um, consequences that come from that. But there are also, um, especially when we look at the global south, concrete institutions like the France CFA in Western Africa, which is literally a monetary policy that literally ties so many countries there still literally to the French banks and the euro. That again, that's what I think what I, what I meant by saying some, some of these things are so blatantly in your face that you wonder how come we have not gotten rid of it yet. And again, you know, we can teach students that people are being activists against this, that once you research it, it's already since the, the independence movements. Um, and then many of these things that come out is that you have those institutions that were clearly created. And I think some um, instantiations of the state and how it has been conceived on the African continent was never created for the benefit of the people in these places. I have no problem calling those colonial and trying to rethink. We have states now, most of the people in Africa would not necessarily want to get rid of all the states. But how do you rethink a state and its services and practices as something that's actually supposedly servicing its people? That's again, one way to have an anti-colonial approach to institutions that seemingly came from the West. But again, like Nivi said, statehood is not something that was invented by, uh, by the West. And democracy would be another example and again, it would be a conversation that would be so interesting to have between Global North and Global South, because what we're making of democracy in the Global North today has very little to do with democracy in general as well, or either Electri the, the difference between electoralism and democracy. So that for me, like the question really invites us to think how acknowledging this original sin does not just benefit some type of epistemic justice that finally the voices are heard of those that have been colonized. It just also shows how moronic many of the practices that we have and even do in the global north, they're not tenable. And I think especially if we bring in climate change and environmental issues, the untenability of the whole colonial construct, we would get such a shortcut if we actually took the previously colonized world seriously as a place to theorize the world, rather than just as, you know, historical side notes or empirical testimonials, basically. Right. So I think that that's the actual challenge. So this question really helps um, to put that uh, into focus. Thank you. Um, yeah, so uh, I thought it was interesting that this question about um, institutions created by colonizers in uh, colonized countries, it was interesting to me that the, the word created was using the word destroyed, you know, and I meet when I heard the Okay, I, I think Musab is frozen. I don't know if... Um... It was so interesting. Oh, no, no. Well, what, what, well uh, oh, dear. Okay. Um, this is life on Zoom in, the, in 2020. Um, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll take another question. Um, so we have a question from Anand, who's a SOAS graduate and from India. Um, so that question is, what do you think about the friction between neo-imperial intervention of Western states and humanitarian intervention for humanity? Um, 
I think uh, we'll start, um, uh, we'll go reverse order. Uh, Olivia, would you like to, to? Could you Actually, repeat you the know, question? Yeah, oh, sorry. sorry. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about the friction, friction between neo-imperial intervention of Western states and humanitarian intervention for humanity? You know, is mm. is there a friction? Are these two different things? I think it's. A, um, yeah. Can we separate them? I think there is less friction than we think. As in, they um, they are part of the same system, and and in a way, I think that's also why in my my initial provocation, that's why I brought in aid and development. I don't see that as a as a separate field of study, even from IR. And, and I do that as um, quite deliberately, apart from the fact that I was trained in IR and ended up teaching aid and development. But I do think that one of the ways in which colonial knowledges or sciences works is to really fragment parts of a story that are supposed, that are generally entangled and part of the same system. And I think that the, the binary that is often presented to us in the study of international relations between humanitarianism and aid on the one hand, and then the so-called self-interested foreign policy and all the analysis we can make from that on the other. That was, I think, a false distinction during colonization, literal one, and it's a false distinction today as well. So in that sense, I think that um, it's much more useful to think of them as um, happening at the same time. And it's not about being 100% the same, but it's an expression of a manifestation of the same system in its different forms. And the different forms need each other for, again, the status quo or, or the stability of that particular system. So in that sense, that's the sense in which I've studied international humanitarian interventions. Again, beyond good and bad intentions of the interveners, it's not that it's all just cynical and we just do it all on purpose. But the language of well-meaning presence is an extremely important element of empire. And so in that sense, the neocolonial and the humanitarian, they, they're interlocking. And that's again where I say that I think the study of the international requires a normative engagement first and foremost, and that allows us to intellectually untangle what is actually going on. And you know, to that you can have many different answers, but that would be my first um, quickish response to a really good question, but yeah. Okay, um, Nivia, and uh, Nivi, did you want to come in on? Um, so, Musa, I'm glad you're joining us. <laughs> you're back. Um, but the question was, what do you think about the friction between neo-imperial intervention of Western states and humanitarian intervention for humanity? Nivi. Yeah. Um, thanks. That's a really interesting question. Uh, Olivia has already said some of this, but I think I'd like to approach it from another angle. That, of course. On the one hand, it's the same question, but on the other hand, what gets written out of the, the position or the condition of humanity? Uh, and so I'm channeling again, Sylvia Winter, who we've mentioned loads of times, who talks about man and the like white uh, man who becomes overrepresented as the figure of the human and lots of other other types of human beings fall out of that remit. And a lot of the sort of um, work on anti-blackness talks about this in specific forms. I don't want to 
reproduce that work. But I do want to say that when we look at intervention as a thing that has happened and that continues to happen, uh, some places are intervened upon and some are not. And some things are made worthwhile and others are not. And those are political choices that are linked to the political economy of imperialism, of capitalism, and of colonialism, and are undergirded by racism. So it is not, we can't have a simple humanitarian intervention for humanity unless we try and unpack what those terms mean and also look at the actual cases on the ground of each of these instances. Are we talking about Libya? Are we talking about Syria? Uh, why do we treat Saudi Arabia in a certain way? By we, I mean Western European countries uh, and treat Iran in a different way. Uh, when we think about Bolivia and what happens in Latin America, what is humanitarian intervention? Who is this humanity? And what kind of purpose are they filling? Um, yeah, that doesn't quite answer the question, but I hope it gets us there somewhat. Yes, it does. Uh, Musab, I don't know if you wanted to come in on uh, on this one. Yeah, I, actually... I want to hear Musab's answer from before. The creation and destruction, it was so interesting. I actually think I can give one answer to both questions in the sense that I think what I was about to say before is kind of quite similar to what I would have said in response to this question, which is, um, again, I was initially saying, talking about Césaire being in the museum and saying, you know, behind these objects, he doesn't see, he sees destruction, right? And he, he talks about how... Um, and it, it seems almost sacrilegious even to say this now, you know, he would rather have the living cultures that had not been colonized rather than have the museum, right? So what does it mean to have these um, recuperations that are part and parcel of the moments of destruction? And, and I think we can think about colonial institutions in that vein. But to me, almost more importantly than that is this question, I think what's behind that, the question about institutions is quite a similar one to the, what's behind the question about humanitarian intervention, which is really what was colonialism and to what extent has it shaped our world? And how much do we live in a world that continues to be organized through various kinds of colonial hierarchy, one of which, is, which are all, all interlinked, right? And they involve race and gender and sexuality at a minimum and I think that question I think if we in a way take a step back to that question it helps us to arrive at a place where we can think um, a little bit more systematically about what we're trying to do when we approach these things so when we talk about humanitarian intervention well the way we see that intervention is going to be very different depending on whether we think we're still living in a essentially dual hierarchical world which is still animated by a civilizing mission uh, reinforced by international law and the international political economy and institutions of global order, vis-a-vis -vis if we think that those things have all gone away and we live in a world of functionally undifferentiated units which basically compete, like, you know, like a, like a pool game, right? So we, we, we do need to make some decisions about colonialism and its effect in shaping the world before we can then, I think, um, address these questions about specific forms of intervention or institution that have come to exist and have been shaped by that world order. And um, I think once we return to the, the bigger question, I think in a way it, it helps us to understand. And just to finish on this point, I thought Olivia's mentioning of the CFA, um, you know, this African currency, which is interlinked with, you know, the French financial system is, is really important here because it helps us to see that 
actually colonialism wasn't just about creating institutions or even destroying institutions. It was also about creating particular forms of relation and relationality. And actually, this is one of the things that I think we as scholars of the international and IR can really help to bring to the fore. And there's a lot of um, things that we know about that empirically, but there are still a lot of things that we actually don't know and that we could really do a lot more research on the ways in which those forms of hierarchy and hierarchical relation have persisted despite you know, the apparent spread of a kind of equalizing impulse in international law. Excellent, thanks. Look, we've got loads of good questions. So what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to skip to some questions that are quite linked to, um, uh, again, to the question of like who, who we're reading and who we're teaching. So um, we have one question that's been voted on, a part, um, you, know, you know, with the voting thing on the Zoom thing, um, from Shingi, I believe it's the name, from Rhodes University in South Africa. Um, so who says uh, the wave of decolonization, decolonial thinking in IR and the social sciences at large is both necessary and overdue. But those of us who work and teach on the continent, uh, I presume that's Africa, can slowly see the privileging of Western based thinkers within the discourse. How do we guard against creating a secondary hierarchy within the decolonial discourse? And how do we guard against replicating the epistemic culture of privileging voices closest and connected to the Western uh, center? Um, I think I'll go, shall I start? Nivi, do you want to start? Uh, sure, I'm just going to try to get the question so I can have a... Um... Sorry, I was muted. So, um, in other words, asking if you're, if you, so from those those people, those academics, those scholars working on the African country, can see that the in this discourse of decolonization and decolonial thinking, there's still a privileging of Western-based thinking. Um, so, how to yeah. guard against this kind of creation of a hierarchy in which the Western-based closest, the voices closest scholars closest to, to the West are privileged over those coming from, um, say, the African continent? Um, yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, I think one of these, uh, one of the ways in which Western knowledge is uh, replicated and wanted more than other types of knowledge is, is also because of language. So it's not just institutional access and institutional resources. Uh, which is important, but also the the people, for instance, that I read and I have been taught and I teach usually write in English. With the journal I edit, basically only accepts publications in English. We're trying to broaden that. So I think there's there is uh, an implicit again an implicit hierarchy that is not so much a political choice as it is a question of once again imperial uh, legacies and lineages. So. I can see why you're saying that you're stuck between like a rock and a hard place because, um, you know, it, it, it is, it's an important and difficult question. Um, and so how do we guard against creating a secondary hierarchy within decolonial discourse? So for instance, if we're talking about decolonial discourse and decolonization theory, a lot of that is written in Spanish. I'm thinking about language again. So does that mean that we then, uh, 
you know, use Spanish language sources more than, say, Quechua sources, even when we're talking about decolonization in the Latin American context, for instance. Um, and one of the ways in which we guard against that is to, one, be aware, and B, if we're in positions of privilege, to try and seed some resources and make certain changes. So Stefano Arni and Fed Moten talk about stealing from the university, which they don't mean is actually theft, but they mean how do we open up spaces for people who might not have those access to those spaces. A really good example of, uh, in practice, was the Millennium Conference last year, where a lot of resource was diverted to people from other parts of the world. And of course, most of it was in English, but it did open up a conversation. It did manage to, uh, to guard against and to actually actively try not to replicate the epistemic culture of privileging certain voices that are closest to power and connected to the Western centers. So I think doing that at a grand scale and those of us who are interested and invested in it, doing that uh, pedagogically as well, is extremely important. Uh, Olivia, did you want to come in on this one? Yeah, it's a really important question. Um, and one of the ways in which I try to um, address it from a literally Western positionality, I mean, all three of us are in a UK university. It's, it's, a, it's a real thing, right? And I think we have to formulate some responses to that from that place. Is to both force myself, but also, you know, in, in teaching, uh, to the fore, this idea of groundedness. And so that's that's one thing. So when you, like maybe said, if you're privileged to put together syllabi or, you know, you have students engaging with certain topics to really instill you, in your own practice, but also in what you transmit, this reflex to connect the sources that you engage with, with the topics that you're addressing. And so for me, that means that... Um, if I think about where decolonial thought came to from for myself, has of course been um, the Walter Mignolo's Glossfogel, whatever, like the the white mestizo man in the Americas that and the thought came through us through North American institutions. Often, it's just a fact, right? But then at the same time, I have a lot of colleagues and fellow activists that keep on reminding us well we think that we're being super radical but by, by citing already this man which already in you know the mainstream IR it still already sounds but to continuously make sure we do not erase where even they got their knowledges from and that is far removed from Spanish is far removed um, from English even more right but at the same time because I'm mostly engaged with the relations between the West and the African continent. For me, a lot of my decolonial thought came from people like Sabelo Ndogo Gacheni, who is, um, was for a long time located in South Africa. Now he came to Babylon, to Germany. <laughs> but, uh, you know, a Zimbabwean scholar who actually did the same translational work, which is engaging with the English access language and making sure that you connect it constantly with those thinkers' thoughts that are outside the canon. I think this is a place also where we come, can come back and understand how important it is to not necessarily just this the canon, but understand that the canon is extremely limited, where we engage with the other voices that actually make us understand what decolonization means to the place you're speaking to and speaking from. 
So that that it's more an encouragement, I guess. It's really to yeah. I know feminist thought has has brought this to the foremost, obviously for us in the West. But the idea of grounding your both your pedagogy and your research, and then re rearrange the hierarchies that you attach to knowledge in that respect, and only then trying to re-erect a uh, decolonial canon. But I, because I think it actually goes counter to decolonial thought anyway. But um, something like that. Everything I said is without um, underestimating the extent to which we are talking about citation politics and access to the journals and whatever. So I'm not dismissing any of that. But in the meantime, so my question, my answer is more like an in the meantime answer, yes. Musab, um, did you want to come in on this one? Yeah, just briefly. I think it's a really important question and a lot's been said already, especially about language and, and positionality. Um, it, I was reminded of the, the Haitian historian Michel Rolf Truyot, and he, he wrote, um, he's written a lot actually about this question of silence in the process of producing history and where, where does silence emerge and, and uh, what, how is silence there? And he talks about, you know, how, and I think it's very much the same for, for us as IR scholars, right, that the sources that we use already produced under certain conditions and there are certain silences already incorporated into their construction and into their assembly, right, into the ways in which they're um, collected in certain places and environments for, for us to then retrieve. And even at the moment of retrieval, yet more silences are added. And I think, um, I think Truyot can really help us to think about the ways in which, and I think this question actually, the ways in which we, we, that's something we really need to think about and to theorize, actually. It's not as simple as it seems, the question of um, elision, domination, and silence, even within an apparently diversified curriculum and canon. And the only other thing I would say is, um, I think it's, it, we can frame this in different ways. I think one way to frame it is this kind of like, oh, well, we're not doing enough, we should do more. And it's, it almost feels like a chore, right? It's like the sense of like, oh, if, if there's always more to do, there's more work to do. But, but to me, and I think here we can learn a lot from historians, um, expanding our remit of what we're reading and who we're listening to is actually really, I think, uh, one of the major pleasures of engaging in this kind of work and in this kind of field. And for me, you know, I think many of us have had this experience when you're working in a new area and um, rather than simply applying a kind of set of preconceived notions that you have, you really start kind of looking at this area of intellectual production, maybe in a part of the world or a language that you didn't know about before, um, can open up these incredible new avenues for research and for thinking. And so I think we should see this as an opportunity. Actually, like, um, it, it's great that there, there's so much more to do because actually there, there, there is a lot of articulation already out there that's accessible to us and that, that could really help us to, to enrich what we're doing. Great, thanks. So then we have a, a, quite, a, a quite a related question, but from um, a first year student, uh, BST first year student in IR at the LSE, Vibhuti, who asks how, who is very, um, I think he's, he's um, giving us quite a, quite a chore here. Um, uh, how should syllabi be restructured or rewritten to include the full scope of available global IR thought, given that Eurocentrism, Eurocentrism pervades the canon that students are generally taught first? 
So post-colonial or critical theory is often taught as a disparate concept to the canonical theory thinkers who tend to be white. So how can this be modified from the first year of teaching? Shall we go in the opposite direction? Musab, shall I start with you? Yeah, I think there's um, there's lots of ways it can be modified. I mean, um, I mean, most simply, you just rewrite the reading list in a way that doesn't do that. And the module guide, and I've seen it done, it's possible to do. Um, but what I would want to also say, along with that, is um, we can't wish away some of the deep structural problems with the discipline and with the discipline's formation and with its um, occlusions and biases. And that means to me that simply rewriting the reading list, I mean, I think it's a great thing to do and it's a first step. Um, we still need to represent to students um, the ways in which the discipline continues to be shaped by a kind of unequal distribution of, of um, voices. And, you know, as Sammy Hoffman says, you know, it's an American social science and it was founded for particular reasons in a particular context. I think that's also important to convey in, on a first year course. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to convey an, an image of a discipline that had been self-critical, uh, radical, revolutionary from the beginning, because that's, that's not really accurate. So I think there's two things. How do we revise? And at the same time, how do we present a kind of realistic understanding of IR that students can then decide what they want to do with? Olivia, uh, would you like to? Yeah, I, um, I've come to understand actually more and more that the last part that uh, Musab was referring to is something that can be done quite quickly just by engaging. Um, I, I don't know, like with my first years for many years and um, we had this module, this method module and part of it was me asking them, what did you hear in the news this week that caught your attention, right? And so this very mainstream understanding of the world and how it is and how it functions is something that comes at us from all angles at all times. And again, I'm speaking to the Western context, but you know, um, I don't want to generalize unnecessarily, but let's say that, that that's what we speak to. So that has really made me think to what extent this, this thing that we have, uh, and I'm not saying that that's what you were saying, but this the, the counter argument we often hear from colleagues is it's really important, you know, that they have a handle on the canon and what's in there and everything like that. I would I would already try to to question that by saying we literally roll out of our youth into our adulthood by understanding some of these mainstream stuff because it's there everywhere we look, right? So the white supremacism that we are talking about in IR is the thing that we live on a daily basis. It's the same thing. It's the way BBC interviews people from other sides of the globe, whatever. It's it's there. So that for me opens up a lot of possibilities to the extent that I do think we need to narrate the origins of our disciplines, what they were supposed to do, whatever. And then, as Musab said, give them kind of a choice or a menu of the different ways in which we can engage bigger questions of living together in an imagined um, international. Um, and so very concretely, the question, uh, what I like about it is that it, it forces us to think about year one and not the critical stuff we do at either the end of undergraduate studies or at the end of any module that, you know, somehow remembered somewhere in week, the last and the last before last week, 
oh yeah, there's feminist theory, others, um, you know, green critique, and others also post-colonial and decolonial stuff. And usually it's put at the very end. But what happens if you challenge to put that in, in the beginning? And so a concrete example for me was that in because students had been asking it after we've done everything in the last year to get it in year one. So we, we've um, remodeled a module that was called Introduction to the Developing World, which is, you know, the most innocuous normal approach that you have in year one in any university, you know, in IR, international development. And so we changed it into a module called The Making of the Global South in year one. It's the same module. We just renamed it. But rather than giving an overview of the disciplinary approaches to development, which we transfer to a methods module, because it's clear there that we're just offering different methods or methodologies, this newly refurbished module starts in 1492, rather than Truman in 49 to start talking about international development. So what you then have is that you create the space in year one. And I think it's important maybe to start thinking about that as canonical as well. So the expulsion of the Muslims and the Jews from the Iberian Peninsula at the same time of the so-called discovery of the new world with Columbus is literally the place where you can start thinking about international development in 1492. I don't see what's not canonical about that, right? So for me, that is just an example to say that, um, again, a lot of it is strategic, but the question that was part of this question that is extremely important is where do we start the story rather than what do we include, maybe. Nibi, uh, did you want to come in? Yeah, um, absolutely. So I think Olivia said some of what I wanted to say, which is uh, that we don't really need to always start with the canon. If we're doing a disciplinary history of IR, we absolutely do. But if we're just looking at, say, a first year course on global politics, then we don't really need to go through the ways in which certain figures and certain theoretical paradigms have been um, centered in international relations. So, for instance, I know that I and a number of colleagues and Queen Mary teach introductions to international relations or world politics, but instead of looking at um, paradigms or theories, so instead of going through realism, liberalism, Marxism, and then putting on post-colonialism uh, at the end, we we explore themes. Um, so we look at borders and capital and capitalism and war and the race and gendered understandings of those things. And then we don't really need to replicate those uh, those more Eurocentric established canonical texts. And uh, I also agree with Olivia that there's enough um, of the mainstream to go around uh, that we don't need to do it in our classrooms. Everybody is doing that at all points. That is that is who we engage with in the world at large. Um, so I personally don't feel it is incumbent on me to prepare uh, students for uh, to to holistically shred Waltz's theory of neorealism. I don't think that is important. I, and actually, I don't think that is useful. Okay, thanks. All right, so now we have um, a question from Jessica, who's um, from International Relations and Development at SOAS, who asks, um, who says, um, the Black Lives Matter movement comes from an imperialist country that shapes the global narrative, shadowing Africa's, South America's, and South Asians' eternal struggle from the white supremacy. 
can this movement bring anything new to IR that will not be US centered? In other words, so to, to yeah, are we just talking about, are we once again in a, dominated by a conversation that originates in the States, is all about the States and so on. Um, so we go, Musab, would you like to start with that one? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very real question. Um, again, I think it's something that apply, applies much more broadly. Um, the question of US um, theoretical, intellectual, cultural dominance um, is a big one, and I think it applies across scholarly fields and areas of inquiry and even outside of scholarship in many different ways. And so I don't, I don't want to be, I don't think there's any facile way in which we can assume that we can evade that or somehow be immune to its power. Um, you know, nevertheless, I would, um, I would hesitate to see Black Lives Matter, which was mentioned in the question, as simply an instantiation of um, American kind of intellectual, cultural power. And for a couple of reasons. One is I think that what we're seeing is that BLM, as it's um, been taken up uh, across different locations in the world, um, has been reinterpreted in, in different contexts um, and areas, of both within Africa, and might, you might think of um, Nigeria today and the current protests happening there, uh, and in locations uh, where the African diaspora is located. So, I mean, where I live in Paris, um, Black Lives Matter, you know, the Black Lives Matter is an active um, principle and here, and it's something that's cited by leaders of um, protests against police brutality. But yeah, it's a, it's a principle that's been, that's understood in relation to France's own colonial history, its relationship to Africa and the Caribbean, etc. Um, and, and the UK, I think, is another example of that. So, yes, to the extent that um, the, the, the power of the US is there, intellectually and culturally, at the same time, I think BLM is a really great case study of the ways in which these discourses can be received, understood, but also uh, adapted and even contested, right, and, and being, be brought into conversation with other, with other things and other situations. Uh, Livia, would you like to address that one? Yes, thank you very much for that question. I think it. Um, the first thing I was writing down was that engaging with Black Lives Matter is not something that just happens to us in the same way that often we say, like, does IR allow us to do X, Y, Z? Um, I think it's sometimes really important to be um, intentional about how we choose to engage with certain things that happen. And that's why I'm grateful for this question. So I, I would say uh, US centrism in Black Lives Matters is not something that just happens to us. It's something that we can either completely just, you know, fall under the fold of, or we can have a more generative engagement with it. And so the reason why I say this is that for me, for instance, growing up as a second generation Rwandan in Belgium, my first critical engagement with being black and the thing that made sense of the racism that I might encounter on a day-to-day -day basis in Flanders but had no language for because it was not present came from the African-American experience right but today as well I would say some of the the the, the limits of engagement with 
only the African-American expression of epistemic blackness is the fact that it might um, eclipse the black condition and the extent to which it's always been extremely international. And so for me, the, 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 the redrawing into the center of the idea of Black Lives Matters, and I, and I say that even outside the actual movement at the moment, but very much as a concept, that what happens to IR if we center it around the fact that Black lives should matter, that's what brings us straight back to racial capitalism and everything that came before and after and during, yeah? And so in that sense, it can be as generative as we want it to be, but I also do think if we engage with Black Lives Matters from a Western positionality, there is an extra invitation to be mindful not to reproduce the experience of people of African descent in the West as the one experience that should be at the forefront of our concerns or understandings. And for me, that hit home very, um, very powerfully. I, I was, um, I was in, in, in South Africa since February until August 1st. So when whatever we call the first wave of COVID hit, um, you know, I was in confinement there in still the best of conditions somewhere on a campus at the university. Um, but in one of the Zoom meetings <laughs> that we had, obviously, you know, a colleague was, a South African colleague was actually drawing our attention to the fact that the amount of people dying of COVID at that time in South Africa, but I think in many places in the South, um, was far below many of the other diseases and causes of, of massive death that had been hitting recent current day South Africa, like TBC, like AIDS. And that the response to COVID had been almost copy pasted all over the world on a blueprint of a middle classy Western lifestyle where a lockdown makes sense. Yeah. So we can see that, that somehow the idea of Black Lives Matter and which lives matter and how we translate that into policies that are supposed to save all lives, because today we're facing this one pandemic that touches all of us comes in to a space that at that moment has relatively little to do with what's actually happening uh, in terms of protests against police brutality, both in Western Europe and um, in, in North America. But it speaks to the same history of different manifestations in which the global system makes sure to remind us day in, day out, if we manage to see it, if we want to see it, that Black lives do not matter, right? So for me, that's why it's, it's not either or, but it requires a, an active choice, especially if we speak from the West, to understand that the majority of Black lives are not even in the West to start with, but also to expand our understanding of what this Black might refer to. Um, but I can do that without disavowing the importance in my personal life, for instance, but also I think in many of our intellectual lives of the contribution of African-American both scholarship and activism in that. Nivi, did you want to? come into that question? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great question. And Musab has said some of uh, what I was thinking about uh, uh, in terms of the French and the British experience. And Olivia has also situated um, Black Lives Matter specifically in a more global context. Um, I think it helps to locate or situate 
BLM in a longer genealogy or a longer lineage of black radical movements. So, for instance, Black Lives Matter often say that their inspiration came from the Black Panthers. Now, the Black Panthers was definitely a U.S. organization, but it was also a global one. It had chapters in Algeria. It had connections in China. It gave rise to the Dalit Panthers in India, to the Jewish Panthers in Israel. Um, and so there's a constitutively global history of those movements. And I think Black Lives Matter is one manifestation of that in the present day. Um, and so, of course, there are tendencies that center the United States, but I think actually BLM has opened up a conversation uh, in the UK about statues, for instance, and our colonial history, or if it's not opened it up, it's actually seized on those conversations. So, for instance, Roads Must Fall was actually some, a, a thing that started in South Africa, but then it came to, the, came to um, Oxford, to the Cecil's Road statue there, and Black Lives Matter took it up on themselves to insert themselves in that conversation in a really meaningful, important and powerful way. So, so yes, uh, we shouldn't hold up the American experience as exemplary, but I also think on the flip side, BLM gives us tools uh, in the UK, for instance, but also I think in places like Israel and Brazil and Hungary and India, that are replicating and reproducing the excesses of US-based racial capitalism in incarceration regimes, in migration regimes, in the prison system. And then the, then Black Lives Matter becomes really helpful. We can be like, okay, this is a global thing. Might have emerged in the United States in the 21st century, but it has a long lineage and its um, manifestations and relevance far exceed that space. And instead of going down the like Afro-pessimist streak, we can actually look at the global blackness uh, thing that this, and I'm not saying that we're all politically black, that's not what I'm saying, but what I'm saying that there's relevance and salience that can be drawn on uh, from BLM. And I think it's actually very important as a movement for that. Great, excellent. Thank you very much. So we've um, we've actually run out of time. There are several more interesting questions. I'm, I'm sorry that we haven't been able to get to them, um, but uh, but I'd like to thank very much our three panelists, Nivi, Olivia, and um, Musab, who have been excellent in terms of giving lots of their time and um, and addressing the questions in in you know so generously. So thank you um, to all of you. Thank you to all of you for attending. Um, and I just wanted to flag that the IR department is hosting two more public events um, this uh, term, and you'll find details of that on the website, as is just come up on the screen. Um, and next term, we also hope to be, um, we're hoping to put on a panel on African approaches to international politics. So keep, please keep um, an eye out for our forthcoming events. And thank you very much uh, to our panelists and to everyone who joined us tonight. Thank you.